There are many ways that we can be warned about things on this earth. We are constantly warned. We have yellow flashing lights to warn us that there is a school zone that we're driving close by. There are red lights in our, the dashes of our cars telling us that there might be a malfunction or something, or even that the field is empty and I need to recharge. There are also verbal and nonverbal warnings that help us to, to understand that we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. If we remember when you were a student, you clearly remember how the school teacher was looking up where you were with those stern eyes looking, reminding you that you need to pay attention. Or what about the frustrated mother who is telling the little kid to behave, to stop, you know, wailing, or he will be put in timeout? If you knew more about Latino mamas, you will understand that we have a warning, nonverbal. Every time that the mama is taking one of his flip-flops, we understand that we need to change her behavior. And they know. We'll see that. <laughs> but we are so accustomed to the warnings that sometimes, because many of them prove to be unfounded, that we learn to make, to make them in our stride, to even ignore them. If you remember in the 1970s, especially at that time, there were people, those prophets of dooms, standing in the corners of big cities with a sandwich sign saying, repent, the end is near, judgment is coming. And everybody who was passing by just look at them and just laugh at them or thinking that they were just locos, crazies, and just keep, keep walking. But that was an interesting warning that not many people were paying attention. But when we open the book of Revelation, specifically in two chapters that we're going to study today, chapter 15 and 16, we understand that that warning is right here for all of us to see. A significant portion of John's revelation describes the coming judgment of God for humankind. These judgments have been divided in three different groups of seven events, as you remember. When we started this series, we, 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 we started with the seven seals that the Lamb that were open one by one. And then that followed seven trumpets in Revelation 8 and 9. And we are here concluding with seven bowls of God's wrath. The bowls of judgment are God's final and complete judgments on the earth. Everything will start to die from now on, according to these chapters, because the end has come. Thus, this message resounds like a crashing symbol for all of us today, for us this morning. Follow Christ or face the coming judgment. If you are not following Christ, then you need to be ready for that final judgment. So the central idea for this message is this, simple. God's judgment is good news for those who respond to the gospel in obedience. But it is bad news for those who choose to reject it. 
God's judgment is good news for those who respond to the gospel in obedience. But it's bad news for those who reject it. What are you doing with God's gospel? That would be the question. So why that message is important to us today, this morning, as we open God's word? It means that we need to understand that we are the messengers of that God has chosen to warn the world that judgment is coming. Judgment is inevitable. If we don't warn them, if we don't warn the people that we know, who will? Who will? And I want that question to, to ponder a little bit in your minds. Who will tell my brother who will tell my, my mother, my, my father, my son, my neighbor? Who will tell them? Who will warn them about the judgment that is coming if I don't do it? Please open your Bibles in Revelations 15 and 16. And I didn't give you a warning, but you are not going to be reading those things on the screen. So you brought your Bible or you have it in your tablet or, or your iPhone. Go to Revelation chapters 15 and 16. You see, we are so accustomed to warnings that sometimes we miss the important things, right? Let's examine exactly what these last judgments, the bold judgments, and why are so significant. As we study two things, one in chapter 15 and the other one in chapter 16. As we study the heavenly prelude, and also, uh, we read about the earthly onslaught. The heavenly prelude that we find in chapter 15, it is impressive. Before recording the horrendous visions of the seven bowls of God's wrath in chapter 16, John here is describing a heavenly prelude of coming judgment with a glorious scene of victory in heaven and a vengeance on earth. Verse 1 says, Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which will bring God's wrath to completion. These seven last plagues are also called the seven mall of judgments. And it will begin in chapter 16, but here in chapter 15, it's given us a little, a little preview of upcoming events that will be unfold completely on earth on chapter 16. So it's so important that we can pay attention to this. So unlike the other plagues that we already started with the seven seals and the seven trumpets, these ones are really, really more um, vigorous, more ferocious than the previous ones. There are similar things happening in, in the previous plagues and previous judgments to these ones. But this prelude of the coming judgment should give us hope, especially if you are a believer in Christ, because God's judgment will accomplish God's purposes. And his purpose is that everything as we know it will come to an end. His purpose is to avenge the Holocaust or inflicted on the saints at the hands of the Antichrist 
and his collaborators during the great tribulation. It will end. Evil as we know it. But also, it will be the reward of those resurrected saints when they come to life and reign with Christ for thousands of years in eternity. So along with the wrath, God reveals his grace. With vengeance, he calls victory. With judgment, he sends joy. This is the underlying principle of God's character. As we see it in the book of Revelation. So in verses 2 and 4, John presents the mirror opposite of the somber doom of the seven angels of the wrath of God. That we just read in verse 1. So while those angels are burning the, 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 the bowls of, of God's wrath, John saw them. And there was an untold number of people in his vision. Number of the ones who were redeemed, bearing harps and standing on a sea of glass, spread out before the throne of God. Listen, John says, I saw before me what seems to be a glass sea mixed with fire. This is a symbolism of condemnation with judgment. Whenever we see water, we see that. Remember how the Israelites were standing in the front of the Red Sea? Before the Lord miraculously opened a way for them to cross. When they were running away from the Egyptians. This is a, a resemblance of what happened back in the book of Exodus. And on, on it, on the sea of glass, stood all the people who has been victorious over the beast and his statue. And the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God has given them. But who are these people? John describes them as those who were victorious over three horrendous pressures to reject. Three terrible pressures that they were going through to reject Christ during the tribulation period. For instance, the political pressure through the first beast, compelling. That charismatic military powers, they were trying to pressure them to, to re renounce Christ. And bow to, to him. Religious pressures that were the second beast. When deceptively. They were trying to, to deviate their attention from God. And look at himself. With that miracle's image. They started speaking. And they were also overcoming economic pressure. Through the number of the beast. That was necessary to buy or sell. So the pressure described here earlier in chapter 13. Push all people on the edge of a life and death decision in the end times in this chapter. Either they could worship the beast and save their lives, or they could resist him and his regime, regime and lose their own lives. So these people standing over the sea of glass, that's a symbolism that they overcome those pressures and they were victorious. They were choosing the best, trusting in Christ. A foolish decision for the people at that time, those who were looking at them maybe in the midst of the unparalleled persecution. But to quote the famous line of a missionary and martyr, Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. They knew. They knew who Jesus were. To the risk of losing their lives, they continue trusting him. That's what I'm telling you. These judgments are good news for those who are faithful followers of Christ. But bad news for those wishy-washy Christians who love more their lives than Christ. So the multitude of the redeemed will sing a song of victory before the throne of God. Each one will play a lyre. It's, it's a harp. It's, it's one of those that, harps that, not, not the ones that you see in the big orchestras, the big ones, but the, a little lyre is how you call them, leaders. This is an interesting comment because unlike preaching, unlike Praising, the, the singing and the praising will never cease. The music ministry will endure through our eternity. And we see them here. God himself is given the instrument so they can continue worshiping the Lamb. In verses 3 and 4, John notes that in this heavenly choir, they will be singing two songs. The songs of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Both songs praise God for who he is and what he has done so far. Some commentators, some Bible commentators offer several theories about the identity of those songs. But most of them agree that the song of Moses probably incorporated lyrics from the, both the Old Testament passages in Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. These songs refer to the deliverance from Egypt through the ten plagues, when God defeated the Egyptian army and Israel was preparing to enter in the promised land. However, these songs were sung also for those victorious multitude of saints that John was seeing on his vision. What appropriate. But what about the song of the Lamb? We know no lyrics. Nobody knew that song. Only the Lamb. But John here gives us the content of those words. He says in verse 3, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For you are righteous deeds, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. This is a passage that points us to the profound truth about worship. Whether the songs are old or new, the purpose of worship is to glorify God for his awesome person and all inspiring word. I was talking to the praise team earlier. I was explaining to them how important it is just for them not only to come and sing, but also to do that as an expression of what they believe about God. And that's true for all of us. We get so accustomed to come and try to do lip singing because we don't know the songs. And try to mimic those words and reflect that words to what we believe in God. But we forget about to internalize, to bring it from our heads to our heart and express it with our bodies. It would be great to have a, a rehearsal on earth of what will happen in heaven. That we can express. And I cannot imagine those 
multitude of people, those spiritual beings worshiping the Lord with all his lungs and all the expression, the way that you and now are singing here on earth. Do you notice how we sing? Well, one might raise the hand, the, all what I can do is just lift it up right here. Because I'm embarrassed for others to see me. It makes sense when you're singing for your friends or your neighbor. But when you are opening your lips, opening your mouth to express what you know about God, you don't care. You know what happened? When you go to a Nike game, that's exactly what you need to do when you're singing to the Lord. Over there, you pour your heart. Even though they lose, you keep pouring your heart to them. But what about here? It seems like God is always losing. But he is victor. He is a winner. Express your life. Express your heart toward them. Because he deserves it. This group of people were worshiping the Lord with all their hearts. While on earth, as we see in verses 5 to 8, there was vengeance on earth. There was something terrible happening. John listened to the vast choir of the tribulation saints. Something caught his attention. The preparations were made for the final outpouring of God's wrath into the world. We see that while the believers rejoice in heaven, those who have rejected the Lord, that free offer that he is giving them to trust him, they were suffering horribly. Verse 5 says, Then I looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. The temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living beings handed each other the seven angels, angels of gold, a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God, who lived forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. You saw the temple in heaven. Similar to the physical building that once stood in Jerusalem. If you ever been in Jerusalem, you will not find any temple. The place of the temple is a mosque, a Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock. It's a beautiful building, but that was exactly the, the, the position where the old temple used to be. And one day, according to Revelations, I don't know how that will happen. I don't know what will need to happen. But in that place, again, there will be another physical temple. Sadly, that's the temple that the Antichrist will build for the Jewish people during the time of tribulation. One of the reasons why they believe that he is the one is because finally somebody was able to make peace in the Middle East. But it was not for the good reasons. But here we see a temple, a temple that John is seeing. And by the time of John's writing, the early temple had laid in ruins for more than 25 years. Yet, even the earthly temple was a model of beauty of what the heavenly temple would look like. Only, only just a mock of what was supposed to happen. 
as the vision proceeded, seven angels emerged from the heavenly temple, each clothed in pure white and adorned with priestly garments. With solemnity, these angels approached to the throne of God. And one of the four living creatures mentioned in chapters before handed each, each one of them a bowl. It was more like a saucer type. It was not a big thing, a big container. It was just more like a small thing, full of the wrath of God. And it was with that shape because in some ways, when we read the word, you know, um, bowls here, we're talking about a small recipient that is going to be dumped into the earth and cause all the catastrophe that will happen. So John's preliminary vision before the pouring of the seven plagues underscores three important contrasts. First, as the temple fills with the glory of God, as we read in the Old Testament, the earth is filled with God's wrath. In days past, the wrath of God poured out on Christ for what he did for sinners. In days future, the wrath of God will pour out on sinners for what they did to Christ. And lastly, while the believers in heaven rejoice over the triumph of good, rebellious people on earth will suffer the destruction of evil. That's a reality. We see just the preamble. When we open chapter 16, then we see each one of those seven judgments happening with horrible consequences. But remember, remember, God's judgment is good news for those who respond to the gospel in obedience but it's bad news for those who reject it. So the early onslaught that is happening on earth as a consequence on their own sins, as a consequence for not being obedient to the gospel. In the events leading to the final catalytic clash between Christ and Satan, we see that the Lord's victory and the pro progressive methodical nature of his wrath have been unfolded before our eyes when we read these chapters. Even as he carries out justice, he provides an ample opportunity for repentance. When we saw the first plagues of the seven seals, only one-third of the population was affected, one-third of the earth. When we saw the seven trumpet judgment, one another third of the population were affected. But when we see the seven judgments of the, of the bowels of wrath of God, the entire world will be affected. So as you see it slowly, each one of these judgments are increasing in power and increasing in damage. So the earth onslaught was toward the natural realm. Those are the first four um, judgments. And then we see them toward the ruler's domain, the following two judgments, five and six. And finally, the seventh judgment, it will be toward the entire world as we know it. That's what we see unfold before us. The first ball produces terrible source on humanity. And there was malignant and painful source. This is the Obsessed of the ulcer of source, often caused by infection. I don't know you ever been infected. That is so painful to have it. 
Imagine that there is no cure for that. There is no relief of pain for what is happening there. The judgment comes from God because of the world's allegiance to, to God's supreme opponent, Satan. And those who receive his mark will also receive the mark of God with those ulcers. Those sores will happen on them. So the second bowl, we see that the sea turns to blood, similar to one of the plagues. Actually, these plagues that we see here, we also saw it in Exodus chapter 15. It's a resemblance of what happened in the past, but with more intensity, with more, more damage. This judgment results in the destruction of all sea life. Imagine all the world's ocean and seas turning into blood. The emphasis here is greater than with the phrase, every living thing of the sea die. There's nothing that they can find alive. Quite frankly, this is far beyond our comprehension. We just cannot imagine. The stench alone will make more people want to die. The third wall, not only the sea, the waters of the sea, the salty waters, but also the, the fresh water, the inland waters will turn to blood. So there was no relief for them. Imagine they have sores, they have a, no things to eat, no good seafood, no sushi, no nothing. And now there is no water to drink. Sometimes we give so much value about the prices of gasoline. And we are so, you know, astonished how, how highly the prices are. In this time, gasoline will be worthless. What will be expensive, what will be hard to find, will be water. So that will help us change our minds a little bit. The way that we waste water now, just be careful. That's not going to be forever. And I'm not an activist here climate about climate change or something. It's happening. It's right here. But it will be too late by then. But the good thing is in verse 5 and 7, he gives us an explanation of all this that is happening so far. Listen, the, the Lord says here through, through John, you are just a holy one who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. You have given blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard the voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. You might say, what? How that can be just and truth? I'm glad you asked the question. Think about it for a moment. How could an earthly judge be called just if he refused to condemn a wicked man and sentence him and being punished? How could a policeman be praised for Standing by as a helpless victim was being robbed and beaten by a brutal assailant. God is just because he is angered by sin and he does something about it. And you might say, it was about time. When his delay is the manifestation of God's grace, the time that you and I are living right now in this grace period, the judgment on Revelation 16 will be the manifestation of God's holiness. A God who cannot stand sin. A God who refuses to respond to men's sin is not worthy of our praise. 
But the Almighty God, the God of Revelation, is praised because he has judged men for their own sins. And finally, he will put an end to all the evil in the world. The fourth ball, the sun scorches people. Not only they will have sores with a lot of pain that they cannot control, that they cannot easy. They will not be able to drink water or eat anything from the ocean. The sun will be so hot. Yes, hotter than the one that we have in summer. This will say summer. And we'll be complaining, thinking that was the end of the world. That's nothing. That's a little taste of what is coming. The sun will be hot. For those beast worshipers, it will be a scorch on top of the source that they had. The world rejects the sun, S-O-N. So now God send us the sun, S-U-N, to judge them. Previously, some people rep- repented because of the earthquake in Jerusalem. Remember Revelation 11? But now, no one does. Even though they are suffering more, they don't repent. They knew those judgments were coming from God. That's why they reject him and they, they, they hate him. And they refuse to believe in him. They recognize his sovereignty, but they refuse to honor him as sovereign. They have taken on the character of the God that they serve, which is Satan and the Antichrist. So that means that they just in truth that they receive in this kind of condemnation. Not only the natural realm, but also the ruler's domain. The fifth and seventh bowl are toward them. The fifth bowl, the beast thrown in darkness and pain. It will be darkness. They will be suffering. They will be hitting each other. They will not be able to, to walk without stamping to one another. There will be a lot of darkness. This affliction is more likely depending on the darkness brought by the fifth trumpet, but it will be more a reminiscence of the plague that happened in Exodus 10 in Egypt. From a scorching sun to debilitating darkness, they will be grouping around in pitch black, running into things, hitting and bumping their sores in a scorched skin. It's terrible. The sixth ball, preparation for the final war. As the armies of the beast, the Antichrist, are gathering together, it says here that the Euphrates River will dry up. A false trinity gathers kings from battle, from different places. And the kings gather at Armageddon. The problem is that the sixth bowl possesses for the earth dweller. It's not a result of judgment itself, but a consequence, which is the war. It does not inflict plague on people, but serves as a preparation for the series of final battles that will happen during that famous war. In the midst of this end time scenario, there is a, a parenthetical statement right here, Revelation 16, 15. Listen. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are those who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. I don't know how many of you, but we got the warning last Friday that there was Hailstorms coming to the Bryan College Station area. 
I don't know about you, but I went to bed and I was all dressed up, even with my shoes and everything. Well, not the shoes, but my socks. Just in case I had to move, I was ready. I'm glad nothing happened, but it happened in other places. It will be hard. At this time, unless you are sure in whom you believe, to be ready so you don't have to be ready when the Lord comes. This section concludes in verse 16 saying that the whole world will gather together in a place that is called in Hebrew, Har-Mageddon. We sometimes hear people talking about the battle of Armageddon, but it's not what the movies show. It's just a plain area. It's not going to be worse there. It's going to be a series of wars maybe. It's not big enough to hold all the armies of the world, but a great place to prepare for battle. And we're going to talk more about in the next chapter that we're going to study. Lastly, the final bowl, the cosmic judgment in verse 17 to 21. Then the seventh angel poured out the bowl into the earth, and the mighty shout came from the throne of the temple saying, It is finished. This is not the same phrase. This is not the phrase that we heard Jesus saying on the cross. It is finished. It's a different one. It's finally complete. It's what it means here in Revelation. Finally, as the Lord promised, he fulfilled his promise. Then the thunder crashed and rolled. Lightning flashed, and a great earthquake struck. The worst since people were placed on the earth, even worse than San Andreas. The great city of Babylon split in three sections, and the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared, and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm, and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plagues of the hailstorm, but they didn't repent. They hardened their hearts. So this final judgment has the greatest impact in all since the air into which the angel pours the, his, his bowl of, on, on, the, on the human breath. breath. It's, it's like when you're watching the 4th of July fireworks, and you know that you see one kind of fireworks go first, and then one kind of fireworks will go next, and then the third kind of fireworks will go next. And at the end, almost in the grand finale, you see all those fireworks coming into one place, all for everywhere. This is exactly what these seven judgments will happen. All the other judgments will come together, but stronger, rapid, and fierce than the previous one. That's what is going to happen. The good news is those who trusted in Christ might not be here when that happened. Will not be here. Will be with him. But the problem is, what about your relatives? What about the people that you know? Because you might think this is going to happen in the long future. But what if, what if this start happening today? What is the rapture happen today? Who's going to tell them? Who's going to warn them? And that's a question that I want you to continue asking for the rest of the moment. Five takeaways from you. First, God's wrath is not forever, but it's real. 
As we see, there were seven bowls filled with the wrath of God. They will be dumped on earth. And they will cause in a lot of terrible things. But they will pass. It's not a problem of how long those judgments will, will stand. What is important is judgment is coming. Judgment is real. It conveys the idea of a deep, intense anger and indignation that God has for a long time toward the sin of humanity. Number two, deliverance for the people of God is disastrous for others. As we read it here in Revelation 16, all these plagues resemble in many ways the plagues on Egypt. And as we read the Old Testament, we see what happened with the Egyptians when they're following the Israelites through the Red Sea. They hardened their hearts. They refused to repent. And God disappeared that generation of Egyptians as well. It will happen the same for those who are not repenting and trusting in Christ in this time. Number three, God's wrath may be severe, but it is appropriate. May be severe for all of us, but it's appropriate. We live in a very curious time. Humanity believes that we are in a position to, to criticize God for, for his actions. Imagine that we are in a court of justice. And instead of God being the judge, we take the position, we take the bench, and we sit God on the dock. And we criticize him. That's exactly the words of C.S. Lewis on his book, God in the Dog. Listen to what he says. The ancient men approach God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If he, God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial might even end with God's acquittal. But the important thing to remember is that man is on the bench and God is on the dog. Where is your God in your life? Are you continue blaming him for everything that is happening to you? Or you are willing to approach to him like the ancient man saying, Lord, I'm accused, I'm guilty, I'm here, Lord. I beg your mercy and grace because I have sinned. Instead of blaming him for what is happening to you. We need to say what, what the people were singing when they were singing the praises in Revelation 16. You are just or holy God who, is, who always is. And because you have sent this judgment, you are right. Number four, punishment does not produce repentance. Only grace does. Punishment does not produce repentance. Only grace does. When we read Revelation 16, you will notice that the imagery here is, is, a, is shocking because it talks about people being covered with terrible sores and being angry and agony and awful agony and suffering so much. But they didn't repent. The reason of these verses are given to us so they can serve as a warning to all of us. And warnings are always Offers of grace. Remember Sodom? 
received no warning and God destroyed it? Remember Nineveh? He received a, warn, a warning. In 40 days, he warned the city of Nineveh. And they took advantage of that warning and repent. Why are these chapters in the Bible? Because warnings are instruments of grace for all of us. So we can repent and come back to him. Remember the second verse of the hymn, Amazing Grace? What it says? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And so when we receive passages like these, and they scare us to death, we need to thank God for his grace that he has shown us so far. And he finished this song, in grace my fears relieved. God is a God of wrath and judgment. One day he will say, enough is enough. But the good news is that the same God who is a God of wrath and judgment is also God of grace and mercy. He wants us to save us. He wants us to be in communion with him. He wants us to save you from all this. So he put a plan in place more than 2,000 years ago. And his plan is still in effect today. His plan is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. So don't wait until the right time before you turn into God. Don't, don't wait until you are completely sure about this to trust him. If you continually ignore God's warnings, you will eventually be unable to hear him at all. And my last point, we are the messengers that God has chosen to give the warning to others. That's why the Lord and his providence has heard us here this morning for us to listen and study these verses, these chapters on Revelation. So we might be reminded that we are the ones who warn the people. The warning of storms and hills and tornadoes over this weekend may save some people, but those who ignore it may some way perish the consequences. Same situation will happen at the end of times. So I don't want to finish this note in a really hard way that it is. I want to remind you what the book of Revelation is all about. And it's about hope and it's about grace. Despite all the horrors that it contains. Because the wrath is not the final word. The book of Revelation opens with a magnificent vision of the Son of God, the resurrected Christ. And it ends with God coming down to men and the kingdom of God here on earth and the tabernacle of God dwells with men. So the Bible tells us that Christ is alive and that he, at the end, every knee will go, will bow down. And every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. He is the King of kings. When you read the book of Revelation from cover to cover, you understand one simple thing. At the end, Christ wins. No matter what. But the important thing is not that he wins. The important thing is, where are you in your relationship with him? Are you on the winning side or are you on the other side? That only can be decided right now. When you trust Jesus Christ, as your Lord, as your Savior, you have been promised that we will be with him for eternity. If you continue rejecting his message and being disobedient to that message, you need to be ready to face the consequences. 
Because remember, those who are obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ will have a place to be with him. But those who reject it will perish the consequences. But between now and then, before the final time comes, remember this. We're going to invite the worship team to lead us in a wonderful song that is not somber. It's uplifting. Reminding us of the song of Moses, the son of the Lamb. Singing about God's precious words and deeds in our midst. And I hope that you can change a little bit your tune on the somber and horror of everything that we just heard. To remind you that it is because who he is, what he has done, that we can trust him. Even in the midst of our difficult circumstances. God is in control even now and even how difficult they are. I ask you to stand as we continue singing and worshiping the Lord. Heavenly Father, Father in heaven, somehow this message needs to get through us in such a way that we will have the courage, the boldness, and the conviction to let every friend, every relative know that you are the God, the only God. Help us to talk to them, Father, with a sense of urgency that there is a catastrophe coming but there is one who can deliver us from evil and his name is Jesus your son father we thank you for him thank you for giving us the grace to come to repentance thank you father for allowing us that in the name of Jesus our sins can be forgiven and our lives can be restored and it's in his name that we worship you today and it's in his name that we sing with our hearts in Jesus, all people say, Amen.